All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Anthony Gonzalez. My name is Amy Lascala. On today's episode, we have a conversation with Dr. Lamar, who is a professor in the in-person and online MHR-IR program here at LER. We talk about the structure and benefits of the online program, the courses he teaches, and his current research on the intersection of workplace ideals and politics. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the LER podcast. Today, we have a special guest on here, Dr. Lamar, who is a professor here at the MHRAR program. Now, Dr. Lamar, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey from Cornell to teaching at LER? Yeah, sure. It's really great to be here, and it's great to be part of this process, and thank you for having me on this. So my background from Cornell to LER was not particularly straightforward, actually. Um, When I left Cornell, I had finished my PhD. I'd also done my undergrad there, and I had also done my master's there. And when I uh, went on the job market after finishing up the PhD, I really didn't know exactly what my path was going to look like. I didn't have a great sense of where I was going to end up. Um, I actually, you know, applied for a lot of jobs and didn't get any offers anywhere and really sort of struggled to know what my career was going to look like. And it was through the process of building networks, building research support, and using um, the connections that I had with various people in the field of employment relations where I was able to kind of start to build a pipeline to understand how to be a good researcher and how to learn how to uh, engage in like academic research work and in a way that we would be productive and positive for my career. So I, uh, my journey took me to Ireland uh, first and I knew nothing about Irish culture. I knew nothing about, you know, the country of Ireland really, but I had some good friends and connections there that like taught me how to be a good uh, colleague and to understand, um, you know, how to sort of operate in the Irish employment relations context. They very kindly um, roped me into a project on multinational corporation research and employment relations research around multinationals. And I was able to publish um, some uh, relatively high-level publications off of that. Um, that allowed me to then move to Manchester in the UK. Again, several folks like brought me um, under their wing, taught me how to become a professor, taught me how to like uh, teach students in a way that I had never been able to previously. Uh, and that was really rewarding and affirming experience. It made me think like, yeah, I, I can probably be a, an okay professor and an okay researcher as well. So I then moved back to the US after being at Manchester and I did some policy work for a little while in DC. And that was a really neat experience because it allowed me to sort of evaluate whether I wanted to be a professor versus being like a policy researcher or a policymaker. And I uh, really enjoyed doing policy work, but what I really missed was like student interactions and the sort of vibrancy and um, collegiality that you get on a university campus that you can't get anywhere else, as well as the sort of cutting edge research and teaching that I could do. So I applied for a job at Penn State, um, was very fortunate to be offered a tenure track position at Penn State, and uh, spent a few years there, again, sort of, you know, building networks, continuing to hone my research skills and cultivate the research that I would do. And very kindly, my old colleague from Cornell in my PhD program, a guy named Ariel Avgar, 
was a professor at Illinois, and he had had a totally different route in this process. He got his PhD at Cornell and just immediately got recruited by Illinois and moved there. And it was like A to B, and I was like A to B to X to Y to Z in doing this process. But, you know, he saw the skills that I had developed, the potential that he saw in me, and he uh, asked me to apply for a job at, at Illinois. And I was really delighted to, and of course said yes. And fortunately, he advocated for me and supported my uh, candidacy and coming to Illinois. And so they sort of poached me away from Penn State. And uh, yeah, then here I, here I was, you know, nine years ago coming to Illinois to, um, to teach at LER. And it's been like the most rewarding, affirming and best experience of my life. It's been awesome. What about HR? Did you find that like also resonated with like law and like public policy? Like where do you see like the two correlating? Yeah, great question. So um, I've always believed that like employment is an amazing thing to study and employment relations is an incredible thing to understand and HR is, a, is an amazing field to go into because it's so intersectional in nature. It's so interdisciplinary. It really speaks to like the human condition in a way that very few disciplines are able to tap into. Like we spend so much of our time at work, but most of that time isn't really done just being sort of routinized workers. A lot of what we do at work is like interpersonal around like conflict and around like politics and around social interactions and around individual sort of psychological understandings of the world. And so employment relations and HR is an amazing field to research because you can bring in all of those different elements. Like there are institutional histories, there are political dimensions and there are like social structures that play themselves out in the workplace that you just can't experience in any other way. And so, you know, my dad was a political scientist and I always had a really deep interest in politics, but um, because I had that sort of exposure to HR and employment relations, I could take like a political lens from my upbringing and apply it to the workplace in a way where I would find these really cool puzzles and stories and um, understandings of how the world operated through the lens of like employment. And I think quite similarly, in the research that I did on like conflict resolution as well, it was very similar in terms of from like a legal perspective, like understanding like the privatization of justice and how that happens in workplaces and how we've basically kind of taken away like public law, um, sort of the like the, the way in which like pub public laws have been privatized through companies uh, is super interesting to me as well. So like bringing all these things into the workplace from um, from outside of the workplace and then seeing how the workplace then spills out uh, into like wider society is always really interesting to me. When I was an undergrad at the ILR school, I, be, I, I applied for that like uh, undergraduate degree thinking that I wanted to be a sports agent and like I had no idea about like uh you know what like work was really all about I I didn't even know what a union was uh when I got to ILR I was like what are they talking about I was like I have no idea you know and it was amazing because like what I knew and what my parents knew when they like told me to apply for the ILR school as, a, as an undergrad was they were like, you love economics, you love history, you love psychology, and you love political science. And you can build from that umbrella, like this amazing career looking at all of those things through the lens of the workplace. And like, yeah, I'll always be super grateful to them for like seeing that in me, even though I couldn't see it in myself at the time. Going off of that, you teach workplace dispute resolution and game theory here 
in person and then you teach workplace online am I correct uh yeah wdr and um hr strategy online can you tell us more about just like game theory what it is where it came from you invented the class so the game theory class um is something that I sort of developed and invented off of my exposure to game theory when I was a grad student. So I had had a little bit of exposure to things like prisoners, dilemmas, and other cool aspects of game theory in actually a negotiations class that I had taken uh, at ILR. And when I came to Illinois, uh, I was asked to teach like an HR strategy class, like strategic HR. And I didn't really know very much about like sort of strategic management, and that's a sort of a common way that we teach um, HR strategy is through a sort of managerial lens. But I loved game theory, and I knew a lot about game theory through that previous exposure. And so um, when I was asked to teach the strategic HR, HR class, I thought, like, you know, how can I do this? Like, I don't really understand HR strategy in the way that would be sort of normally understood. And in fact, I think it worked really advantageously for me to not like have that previous exposure to what we would sort of operationalize or define strategic HR as. And it allowed me to bring in this lens of game theory in a way that was kind of unique and special that no other like professor that would be teaching a class like that would probably think to do. And the only reason that I thought to do it is because I had no alternative. Like I didn't really know what I was doing. And I was like, well, this is cool. I'll, I'll do this, this game theoretic side of it. And that really like evolved into an entire class built around concepts of game theory. And so, you know, what is, what is game theory? You know, basically it's, it's nothing more than the um, sort of strategic actions that we take in response to the world around us, seeing how the world behaves, knowing that we can't unilaterally um, shape the world without being reacted to by others and then picking our best response to how we believe others will perceive and react to the actions that we take. Um, and I think a lot of strategic thinking is, um, is sort of uh, maybe like uh, limited in that it focuses only on the singular actions that you take and not on the reaction that others have to you. And so what I try to do in game theory is to teach you that like you don't operate in a vacuum your, your, your choices will be reacted to by others. You have to pick your best response to how you think others are going to behave. Um, and so I built a, a class basically, you know, trying to teach various ways in which you can, um, you can uh, sort of see the world uniquely once you kind of think from that perspective. I know Amy is taking it right now. Can you tell us about your experience with it? What have you really gained from it? Yes, I remember when I was first enrolling for classes, I saw that game theory and HR was an option. I thought that was really interesting coming from a business background and learning game theory and economics, but I had no idea what the connection between game theory and HR or strategy would be. But having taken your class, I think it really did open up my mind to think more strategically by putting myself in other people's shoes and like why people make these decisions or why businesses... Um, pursue specific strategies and how they react to other businesses, um, competitive strategies and what that'll look like. And I think it definitely changes your thinking and is really important when going out into the real world and understanding that you can't just be in your little bubble. You do really have to understand how other people are operating, um, what they're thinking and kind of the rationale behind that. I think one of the main things we learned in that class is that people don't make rational decisions. So Guilty. you have to live a lot off of the irrationality that may or may not happen, especially if you get stuck in an unfortunate prisoner's dilemma. I completely agree with you. I think it's like, 
it's one of those things where like um i think i say at the beginning of the class that like the goal for this class in a really small way in the tiniest way possible is just to like slightly change the way that you like see the world around you and if if you come if you buy into what a class like that can do you know it can it can make you rethink and reevaluate how you might want to interact with people and how you might want to interact with the world and just in a small way that's that's really meaningful you know for a professor to be able to like um, achieve that in, in, in any tiny way that they can. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's very unique that in the online program, you teach HR management strategy through that game theory lens as well. So in addition to HR management strategy, I know you also teach workplace dispute resolution in the online program. Can you tell us a little bit about that course? Yeah, WDR is, you know, very much sort of like a, a classic um, examination of conflict in the workplace. And I begin that conversation with a key assumption, which is that like conflict is totally inevitable and totally okay. And our goal should not be to um, minimize, eradicate, or treat conflict as if it's a problem. Our goal should be to accept conflict and to realize that conflict can produce very important and productive uh, outcomes for employees. It can be a source of power. It can be a source of realization. It can unearth things that people might might um, be suffering from in a latent way. And uh, the examination and, uh, and unearthing of conflict can be used very positively if done correctly. And so in that class, we look at like strategies that you can use to turn conflict into something that is positive and productive. We also in that class look at um, various sort of mechanisms through which conflict can be um, can be resolved. And some of those mechanisms are more pernicious than others. Um, something like a mandatory arbitration provision, for instance, for resolving conflict in a workplace is a lot more controversial and I would argue much more problematic in dealing with conflict than something like a voluntary mediation system or an interest-based negotiation system. So I teach you each of those, or I teach students, you know, each of those kinds of pillars of conflict resolutions. And we talk about the sort of political dimensions of them, why some are more or less popular and why some are more or less pernicious. When you're teaching online versus in person for like workplace dispute, what are some key differences, but also like what are still some good benefits to taking that class online? Yeah, you know, so we, we very much try to um, replicate to every degree that we can the sort of in-person experience when we go online, which is to say, like, we don't want it to be um, a weaker experience or one that's less rigorous or less um, or lacking in quality in any way. But we also want to play to the strengths of the online experience and the online format that you would have. And we also want to play to the strengths of the students that we get in the online program, which sometimes have a slightly different profile from what you would get in person. So many of our online students are going to have um, career exposure to HR already. They might be coming from the workplace and uh, taking online classes um, through their jobs. And so, you know, in WDR, what I tend to do is really rely on and value um, students bringing their own um, experiences into the class and speaking to those experience, experiences and also speaking from those experiences when they do their, um, their activities. With that said, you know, the classes are quite nicely, I think, positioned to be similar in content. Um, so we do like tons of role play exercises and simulations in WDR. And the good thing about those is that those can work both in person and online very well. So there's a ton of cross pollination 
but where you find like differentiation between these two, it tends to come down to like what what I believe the students are going to be able to contribute to the class or, or how I believe they'll be able to contribute differently uh, to the class and allowing students the space to sort of have agency to contribute in ways that are most productive given the format that they have. And then to go with that, you are the acting director for the online program. I think for anybody who's listening right now who doesn't like know necessarily what that curriculum looks like or what are the hours I go into it, like the time length? Can you give us some overview on what that kind of entails? Yeah, for sure. Um, and here's where I really want to emphasize and um, point to the role that um, LER staff plays in making all of this successful. Um, I, as you know, acting director, am incredibly fortunate that the, the folks like Eden and Becky that I um, turn to and rely on for the vast majority of like the, the staffing side of the online program really just like handle, you know, everything. They handle so much. Um, and so it allows me to be sort of a backstop for any big issues that might emerge. It allows me to um, you know, sort of make sure things are like running smoothly and that we're not running into any issues, but our staff are so good. They're so competent, skilled, and careful in how they run the program that I feel like my job is just like the easiest thing. It's it's literally just sort of making sure that everything's running okay, and we've put into place structures and individuals that are uh, so, so skilled and, and capable in doing that that it makes it no problem. And I also want to mention uh, also my colleague, Amit Kramer, who um, is the has been the longtime um, director of the program, and he's on he's on sabbatical right now. So I'm just taking over for him for the year, and he just left this program in such an amazing position that again I could just sort of step right in, have everything be super seamless, and have it be running really well off of the incredible hard work of um, folks like Eden and Becky. That's great to hear that the faculty is as supportive of the online program as they are of the in person program. What would you say the difference is in terms of the structure of the classes and what kind of demographic usually will enroll in the online program? Yeah, so, um, you know, there's, there is a, a huge amount of similarity in, in, in how we try and um, run the classes in terms of like the content you get and the instructors that you get, the quality of the education. But, um, you know, we also really recognize that like, so the in-person program, as you all know, is like, pretty intensive. It's, you know, 18 months of just like nonstop, you know, sort of daily um, engagement with LER stuff, you know, for better or worse, like you're, you're here, like, way before I get here to teach, and you're here way after I'm done teaching, you know, and uh, I think that's by design, it's sort of set up in such a way that you have a lot to do in a limited amount of time. With the online program, since many of the students are already working professionals, and since Many of them are maybe slightly in a slightly different place in their careers or uh, maybe have slightly different expectations for what they're getting out of the program. There's less focus on something like spending a lot of time doing, you know, recruitment um, evenings and, you know, things like that, things of that nature. And there's more time dedicated to allowing for like a wider amount of flexibility with which you proceed, um, proceed through the program. And so we have a slightly longer time frame. We have a slightly less um, uh, 
slightly less uh, uh, like voluminous amount of classes that you take in any given um, semester. So you're only going to take a couple of classes as opposed to doing like a full course load. And uh, we have a compressed um, time window in which the classes operate. And so they're only going to be like six weeks or eight week classes as opposed to like, uh, you know, 15 week classes. So you it's very intense for those like six or eight weeks, but you only have to do like, you know, one or two of those classes in a given time. And we allow you a, a longer window in which to actually go from start to finish in the degree program. I believe that's really important for full-time professionals who are seeking that higher education to have that flexibility. Do you also see any students coming straight from undergrad that will opt for that online program over in-person? Yeah, you know, we, we try to... Um we try to recognize that the markets are a little bit different and we try to encourage folks that are coming straight out of undergrad and want to have the sort of um, grad school kind of, you know, college life, recruiting kind of life and what have you uh, to just sort of go into the, the, the in-person program. It's a really sort of natural thing to kind of go straight from undergrad into that program. And we get, I think, you know, the majority of our in-person students kind of taking that route. Um, that's not to say that you can't, you know, also pursue the online program um, out of an undergraduate uh, degree, but it's one of those situations where, like, if you're, like, in Illinois at UIUC or something like that, it's very easy just to come over to the in-residence program. Whereas, you know, if you're, like, maybe, you know, geographically you're not able to, like, come to Illinois, for instance, um, after you finish up your undergraduate degree, then, like, by all means, I think it would make a lot of sense to, you know, try to have you do it online um, instead. Uh, yeah, but we, we try to make sure that, the, that we don't create any situations where we're sort of cannibalizing one um, group from the other. Like, if you, you know, if you, if you, think that it's best for you to be in person, we have an in-person route for you. If we think that it's, if you think it's best to be online, we have an online route uh, for you as well. And we can kind of get a sense as to, um, you know, what might be the best path for you to go down. And we have a conversation with you about that. The online program can appeal to different demographics. So like you said, of course, full-time professionals makes up the majority of the class, but that doesn't mean that people straight from undergrad or changing careers can't enroll, especially if they maybe aren't geographically able or uh, willing to relocate to Illinois, since that can be a bigger move. Um, and it's good to emphasize that you'll still get the same quality of the program. I think that's the most important thing to remember if you are debating between online or in person. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And just one additional thought there is that there is a lot of like, we have a pretty, um, a pretty sort of routinized or prescriptive version of like our in-person experience like you come in you have certain classes you take you do the recruitment process you do internships or what have you right it's, it's pretty well I think I think you would agree it's like pretty well um, sort of like laid out for you from the time that you start it, the online program allows for a little more flexibility in terms of um, like the path that you're in and the path that you're using the online program for. So, for instance, like we have folks that um, were were near alums from like the 1980s, for instance, who might need like one or two more classes and they might have had like a life change that didn't allow them to get those one or two credits or finish those one or two classes from you know the 80s or 90s. And they can come to the um, enroll in the online program to complete their degree, for instance. And so, like, you know, there are like 
paths that you can take through the online program that look a little bit different. There's some certification programs that you can do where you don't have to get like a full degree, but you can get a, a, a certificate instead. Um, there are a number of sort of avenues that you can take that are a little different from the more sort of clearly defined 18-month uh, in-person program that you have. That's great. And again, I think that flexibility is so vital for people to be able to come back to school or enroll for the first time in a graduate education, but have the flexibility to do those compressed online courses where they can still pursue um, their full-time work. So I think we're going to move into some cr the current research you're doing. Can you tell us what your current research interests are and what is drawing you to those topics? Yeah, I'd be really happy to. And um, I won't like take, you know, a massive amount of time here talking about my research because we can obviously like I can talk for, for hours about it. But, um, you know, to put it sort of in a, in a simple way, like I've always been really interested in the intersection between politics and the workplace. Um, I find that the workplace is, in a, is, is a very political space. And I think understanding the ways in which spillovers occur from the workplace to politics and from politics to the workplace is just really fascinating to me. Um, I think that we're living through a really difficult um, political time right now. And I think that we're really all searching for sort of answers to help us understand both why certain political things have been occurring during our lifetimes and also maybe ways in which we can make change um, in various political processes. And the, the research that I do centers those conversations around workplace activities. Um, so I look at, for instance, the ways in which like labor organizations can um, uh, support uh, politicians that are running for office that will then enact pro-worker policies once they uh, once they are uh, elected into legislatures. But I also look at research that examines like the effects of good HR and positive employment practices on um, the development of like uh, democratic institutions and civic actions that promote democracies within countries. So my research sort of covers a, a wide array of um, of avenues in which the workplace and political spheres can intersect. And then the other main area that I also am involved in, uh, that I have a, a sort of core strand of research in, in, is in conflict. And so that's why it's so natural that I teach like workplace dispute resolution, because a lot of the things that I teach in that class are actually things that I have researched um, and understand from a research perspective. The big thing that I focus on there is the idea of privatization of justice through arbitration. And so the idea of like, you know, what does it mean to um, tell an employee who might have previously had access to justice through some sort of public agency or some sort of public um, right that they were given, like a, a legal right that they were given? Uh, what does it mean to tell them that they no longer have that public right, that they don't have that public access? And instead, um, they have a private system that they will use. Um, to some degree, this is sort of debatable as to whether there, there are positive aspects to the, to the idea of privatization, but I think there are a lot of really problematic aspects to uh, privatization of access to justice as well. And so in my research, I try to take a, a balanced perspective and an empirically rigorous perspective in trying to examine what it has meant for workers um, as access, is, access to justice has become increasingly privatized since the 1980s and 1990s. What you'd learn in WDR is you'd learn um, 
a holistic way, a holistic array of how you would handle uh, conflict in the workplace. You know, many of these conflicts we don't ever want to escalate to something like arbitration or litigation. There are better ways to solve them, much more positive, productive, kinder ways uh, to solve these conflicts at much earlier stages. You know, when these conflicts get to something like litigation and arbitration, relationships are broken massive damage has been done to the participants in the conflict. And so you learn about the um, types of conflicts that go to arbitration, why they go to arbitration, and why it might be problematic that they're dealt with in arbitration as the sort of last um, as the last aspect of the class. Um, so you'll learn all about like privatization of access to justice, but only after you've learned about the much better ways to deal with these things. Um, my goal in, in doing it like that is to kind of teach you when you go into HR that like just having like an arbitration system or a litigation system in place doesn't mean that you've at all resolved or solved conflicts. And in fact, like that's the worst possible way to really solve a conflict is to use one of those systems. There are much better mechanisms available. You can learn all of those. Uh, but concurrently, if you do have to go to like or implement an arbitration system or something, you should know like what what you're doing and you know what what you're creating for your employees. I think that's so important, especially because one of the most nerve wracking things going to HR is having to deal with employee conflict and how do you make that a positive thing or how do you go about that in the best way for both the employee but also being representative of the company. So I think it's very unique that you're able to teach a course that equips us. Um, to be able to handle those conflicts when we get into our internships and full-time roles. All right, I know you recently published a paper about the importance of workplace ideas in politics. Can you tell us a little bit about the findings? Yeah, um, so this was a paper that I wrote with a co-author, um, a really wonderful friend, colleague, and co-author named John Budd. And uh, John and I have been a really strong uh a collaborative team on a series of papers around um, the workplace and politics. And this was a, a paper that, um, that I was really interested in doing with him because um, it's actually really hard to um, quantify the notion of an idea. Ideas are sort of weird, you know, it's kind of a nebulous, like vague term, like what does it mean to like have an idea and to articulate an idea? And that's especially true when it comes to the workplace. Like, what does it mean to be like pro-union or pro-labor or anti-union? How do we articulate those ideas and how do we um, put them into action? And one of the cool things is that political parties are actually required to quantify, well, not to quantify, but they're, they're required to articulate their ideas very clearly uh, about how they feel about various political dimensions in what's known as a manifesto. So in every election, they have to write like a party platform or a manifesto, which spells out how they see the world, all the ideas they have for their viewpoints, beliefs, and perspectives on the world. And uh, I mean, in particular, like the, the world of politics that they want to influence and, you know, how they, how they, um, how they would like to propose solving, um, you know, the issues and problems that, th that they see in front of them. Many of those issues are workplace specific issues and they involve things like, you know, um, whether you support a union or not, whether you're um, pro worker or um, anti union or what have you. Um, and so what I was able to do is use data that quantifies um, the relative importance of employment relations to political parties 
as they think about and articulate their ideas to the public. Um, how much does something like HR and employment relations matter to these parties when they um, write their manifestos? Um, which types of parties seem to care more about work and workers than other types of parties? And have those ideas changed over time? Um, so you think about someone like Ronald Reagan, for instance, or Margaret Thatcher in the UK. Uh, you know, when they came into power, the argument goes that like uni unions basically um, be were not really eradicated, but they were certainly, um, you know, put in their place by those um, politicians. And uh, that essentially union density started heavily declining as a result of um, these politicians coming into power. And the argument is that those politicians had a series of ideas about unions that led them to enact policies that were going to reduce labor power within the US and the UK. So what this paper does is it quantifies that notion and it basically says that like certain types of parties and certain um, uh, time frames or under certain conditions do in fact like introduce um, new ways of thinking and new ideas about work and workers and that deeply affects how they're going to treat those uh, those in individuals entities and groups when they actually um, govern. That's really interesting and I think the intersection of workplace ideas and politics can be an interesting topic especially for those students who I know come from a political science background. I think it's very common for them to shift into that HR or pursue labor instead of um, on the political science side. So I think it's great work that you're doing, um, being able to research and, and find out these different intersections that are happening with HR and politics. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'd love to have any political science folks that want to do labor and politics work come work with me. To wrap up, do you have any final advice you'd give for students considering the online program or considering applying to the LER online program? You have really no constraints in how you examine and pick a program that's um, that's suitable for you because you're not constrained by geography. Um, you're not you know, constrained really in the same way physically that other folks are constrained. And so how do you evaluate like which program you should select, um, you know, who you want to trust and the program that you want to like, uh, you know, put your time, energy and effort into. And I would say that um, you should really consider, you know, the LER program because we try very hard to um, follow from the incredible in-person experience and mirror the in-person experience um, in the online uh, in the online format, and as a result of that, um, you know some of these online programs that are um, that are on offer uh, kind of create like two-tier systems or create like a second-class kind of system of online education for students. And our program does nothing of the sort. You know, you get exactly the same level and quality and rigor of training and treatment um, by faculty, by your peer students. You get the exact same degree and it has the exact same level of like both legitimacy but also reputational integrity. And so as you kind of try to parse what is a good quality online experience versus a bad quality one, you know, just consider like we, we are um, a very trustworthy uh, signal of quality because you know how great the in-person uh, program is and that's only being replicated for you online. Thank you. I think that is great advice for any students who are considering the online program or debating between 
in person and online. So thank you again, Dr. Ramar, for coming on today's episode. We really appreciate your time. This was the best. Thank you so much. I've like never done this before. It was awesome. I really appreciate it.